Hello, this is Andy Brewer with the Northwest AHEC Healthcare Insights Podcasts, episode 27, I believe. Today I have guests from Cross North School and Children's Home. I have Mary Beth Robinson, who's a family therapist and executive director of the Triad area. Um, and I have Eric Mathis, who's coordinator for the Miracle Grounds Network at Cross Noor. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, so, Mary Beth, why don't you um, explain your role and, and give us a little background on Cross Noor, and then we'll, we'll do the same with, uh, with Eric and his projects. So I am the executive director for Cross North School and Children's Home. And what that means is I help to facilitate programming and just the everyday happenings at Cross North and also go into the community in the triad to talk about the mission of Cross North. Mm-hmm. And basically what Cross North does is we want to build a sanctuary for healing for our children and families and the community in order to have, well, like I said, healing for a lot of young people and families that have experienced trauma. We're very steeped in the child welfare system, which there are around 16,000 children in foster care in North Carolina. 16,000? Yes. Wow, okay. So the system is in crisis. Mm-hmm. And what Crossner does and what we're very proud about is we keep sibling sets together because one of the what when children come out of foster care what they say is the most important piece for them would have been to have their siblings so if you think about this when children are put into the foster care system they're actually taken out of their community they're taken out of their house they're taken out of their school Mm-hmm. And then what occurs a lot of times in North Carolina is they go to different parts of the state. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we keep the sibling groups together. We just had a report yesterday that 83% of our children in care are siblings. So that's really something that we're very proud about. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And and you, there's th- what I didn't know before we started this was there's three locations. I, I know the one here in Winston-Salem, but there's one in Cross North, North Carolina, which is uh, um, nestled in 86 acres in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains, according to your website. And then uh, you have 212 acres here in, in Winston-Salem and then uh, downtown Hendersonville, North Carolina. So two of those are in our region for Northwest AHEC. Um so, which is which is great. So, I that was new to me, knowing that there was multiple locations, and I guess that's where the name comes from as well. Yes, the two, and both are over a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. So that also talks about the commitment that both agencies have had to with that healing process. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I came across Eric via um, Gabriel Hib- Higgins here in Winston, who who mentioned the uh, story of the plate, and that's. Uh, uh, topic near and dear to me is just being in touch with with uh, agriculture and and where our food comes from and listeners to this podcast will know i, I harp on the nutrition and being in touch with with that kind of with, you know with being in touch closely with the source of your food and and acquisition and preparation and and paying attention to that so uh, i'm glad uh that you guys could join me because that is i think we're going to have a great conversation about this topic and and I did watch your TEDx um, presentations about mountaintop um, restoration, which we'll get into. But tell us about the Miracle Grounds Network and, and the story of the plate and how you got started with all that. Yeah, 
Um, I think, um, uh, to be honest about it, as I started gardening with my grandmother when I was younger up in Yakin County, I'm kind of a hybrid city slicker country boy. Um, uh, having grown up in Woodson Salem, uh, went to West Forsyth, but also had a, a lot of trauma, uh, in my past. Um, uh, for the listeners that's not aware of adverse childhood experience, um, strongly encourage, um, listeners to research that and we'll get into more details around that. Um, but it, it directly related to different ways that I coped with my trauma, uh, throughout my life. So I'm very unhealthy. And a lot um, 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 healthy explorations. And one of the obvious ones being nutrition um, and meditation and everything like that. Um, so um, that led me into basically uh, getting deeper into exploring the role of food and connecting to uh, racism, climate change, um, health, of course, health disparities and a variety of spectrum related to economic, social, and ecological impact, uh, otherwise known as sustainability, um, and um, been uh, steeped in sustainability for about 15 years. And that led up to, I'll talk a little bit about the history here in a little bit, um, led up to me um, running into uh, Crossnor here in Winston-Salem. Never thought I would land back in my home hometown. Uh, happy to be here and literally uh, building my roots on a gorgeous 110-acre farm in the heart of Winston-Salem uh, to where we're diving deep on what we now know to be a very novel and innovative uh, food uh, program around trauma, resiliency, and social determinants of health in Winston-Salem that is potentially poised to be a national model over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Now you want to go in a little bit of the story of the plate. That's kind of how you frame all this, um, or at least that's a, an approach to, uh, to bringing sustainability to our local community in a, in a model that can be replicated. So, uh, you know, what I know about it is, um, you know, local businesses, restaurants, uh, composting their waste and, and then uh, sharing that, that that byproduct of their businesses uh, with the farming community, and then buying the produce from from local sources. Um, did I get that right? Yeah. You did. <laughs> um, so the way that um, coming from an environmentalist background, um, primarily cutting my teeth in Central Appalachia, um, the typical approach to composting or organic food and everything is through an environmental lens on like what the overall impact is on the uh, ecological impact. Um, so what I, what I found uh, within, you know, my dad being uh, from the conservative side is it really didn't appeal to him and a lot of my, my family. So what did appeal to them is um, impact in terms of human to human relationships so the story of the plate kind of emerged from how can we begin telling a story of composting that not, not only helps out um, ecological impact, but also brings in probably one of the most important components is the social component and connecting folks when they go and, and compost their food, at, for, for example, um, downtown Village Juice, Caminos, that they can begin making connections between that compost 
and um, low-income communities or refugee communities uh, across Winston-Salem. So the story of the plate takes um, the composter through composting their food. That compost then gets processed. We use that compost on the farm as well as a, a wide uh, network of community gardens across the city and begin telling a story about like how uh, folks are impacted from interacting with the food, growing the food, which has healthy benefits to our psychological and uh, physical well-being, um, and then how that food ends up back on the plate. Um, so a tangible example is uh, some refugees that we worked with this past year um, went through that whole process, used the compost, grew some food, and that food ended up at Camino's um, where people got to consume it. And then whatever they didn't consume got fed back into that cycle. Um, so the, the simple component is really uh, providing a very transparent supply chain so where people can understand the impact of their food, not only in the, on the environment, but also the social impact as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you raised a whole lot of things we can go into there. I mean, you're building a community based around a closed circuit almost like we're connected. We're all connected through food. We all have to eat as humans. So, and we all have plates in which we identify with our cultures and our identities through the food that we like and that we eat and stuff. And, and in knowing where it came from and knowing how it got produced, I think is important. And again, the ground, the literal grounding of getting your feet in the soil, your hands in the soil, um, has to have a huge impact on behavioral health. Um, um, so I think, you know, I love what the story is because you're, you're, you're impacting, um, things in so many ways. And, and I, I spent a year on a, in a, um, ecological sanctuary, um, down in, uh, Kariku and Grenada. And, and that was their message the whole time was the environmental and the social should have never been disconnected because they're so interwoven and we lose track of that we we look at the environment and we say oh well you need to fix the environment and then we look at social factors and and we and somehow we think those are separate and what you're saying is no they're absolutely not they're absolutely connected the environmental the the social and what was the other the ecological so so the, those factors um seem to you seem to have woven those into this model that, that yeah, what is that, that, that's kind of what um, defines the present paradigm. So everybody's probably familiar with what sustainability is about every city in the United States now has like a director of sustainability about every university you go to. And what it, what it's fundamentally predicated on is identifying the connections between uh, economic, social, and environmental. Um, so that is a step in the right direction to basically resolve that. And um, after um, engaging in various ways of applying sustainability over, I guess, about 15 years, um, what became more apparent is everything operates under health and wellness. So if you think of it in a systemic way, you know, the community health, how everything is connected, um, um, ecologically, economically, and socially. Um, and then you think about what specific prescriptions, what indicators uh, you can be relying upon to make sure that your community is either sustainable or not sustainable. Um, I've found with 
numerous practitioners across the U.S. that health and wellness is the lens uh, for uh, building communities, which a lot of people are now calling that uh, regenerative development. Okay. Which is kind of the post-sustainability. Yeah, I haven't heard uh, that term. Lens. That's that's great. Well, you know, we're sitting here in a, in a hospital, and we're kind of the – the tip of the spear, I guess, of, of the healthcare um, uh, afflictions, let's say, keep our, our healthcare terms. Um, you know, and a lot of people have to use this emergency department as their doctor, as their primary care, which is what we're trying to prevent. Um, and one of the ways that, or one of the many ways uh, that we're trying to do that is through, you know, re- outreach, community outreach. So meeting the people where they are, trying to figure out what the causes of their uh, uh, lack of access to care, all the social determinants, let's just say. Um, again, the, the listeners of this podcast are probably getting tired of me covering some of these topics because but but they all make sense in the in the realm of social determinants and healthy communities and the health of the population as in physical and, and behavioral health. So um, where am I going with that? Well, um, so, so you know, we, we, we approach it through faith, we approach it through nutrition, we approach it through behavior modification, life coaching, health coaching, all these different ways, and yet we're still faced with um, uh, uh, influx of uh, people using the emergency room for their primary care. The opioid crisis is, is doesn't seem to be abating very quickly. Um, so there's a lot of these things that I think that these models, like you describe, have the real uh, the, a real uh, oh gosh now I'm losing words here um, a real possibility of creating real systemic change. And that's what is so attracted to this story is because, again, we're all connected by food um, and we all have to, I think, renew, regenerate our knowledge of that within our, our own systems. And we have to look at our own lives as systems. I mean, we go to the grocery store, we buy stuff, we cook it, we eat it, we throw it the rest away, and, and that's the end of it. We repeat that cycle. And that doesn't seem very sustainable, but we haven't thought, I don't think a lot of people think about the sustainability of those practices. You know, we recycle once a week or whatever. We say, okay, we've done our part. And, and uh, so, I mean, tell me how you see this plan. I mean, it's, it's when you have 110 acres of farm that you can work with, that's great. But how, how, how do you replicate that into neighborhoods where they don't have a lot of land or they don't have, um, you know, how do you see that happening? Well, and I really want to answer that question because that was a long-winded. That, that's, question. <laughs> that's the most exciting part. But I wanted to step back a little bit and let Mary Beth um, fill in uh, one of the biggest gaps I've found as being a practitioner of sustainability, as um, being a thought leader in developing this new field of regenerative development. I found uh, I had a big, you know. Um, um, awakening moment years ago and how everything connected around health and wellness. And that's when I did a deep dive around social determinants of health. Um, but um, without diving too deeply into my background, when I came down here in Winston-Salem, um, I was unaware of trauma resiliency and particularly the science related to that. Um, so typically the way a lot of people understand adverse childhood experience is, oh, there's a lot of past trauma, 
that leads to people smoking, drinking, and you know, self-medicating, which leads to um, later in life diseases. But it's deeper than that when you start understanding the neurophysiology of that. And then if you kind of really, really meditate on the importance of um, um, addressing trauma resiliency systemically, um, you start chipping away at one of the fundamental, um, I guess, barriers to um, bridging the gap between um, communities that are unhealthy to communities that are healthy. And a part of that is even me with a lot of trauma and my background, um, even if I'm not self-medicating, which I'm not, um, but uh, my body is wired to produce specific chemicals that decrease the likelihood of, you know, me having a long-term life and everything in terms of like my heart rate and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But um, my outside of that, the the background of like linking in um, community gardens, soil, food, and everything, um, meeting with uh, Crossnor, and so basically, I was focusing on the gut, mm-hmm. on how to get really good food into people's uh, gut, and see what happens around that with food prescriptions. But when I came to Crossnor, it was a huge eye opener around trauma resiliency, and I think Mary Beth can kind of unpack. Uh, some of the importance and science behind that because once we kind of build that into this platform in Winston-Salem, I think we're going to really see some very, very tangible results. And and that's when I'll get into talking about sure. more of the gardens and stuff. Sure. All right. Take it away, Mary Beth. Yeah. So um, Eric has brought up the adverse childhood experience. So there, there was a study, actually the largest control study that's been done in the country. And it was in 1985 by um, Dr. Folletti, who was, is with uh, Kaiser Permanente, and then Dr. Andy, who is with C- the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they asked for, they were also an obesity clinic. And what they asked were for people to be a part of this project, and there were about 17,800 that were a part of this project. And it was all around 10 questions. And there are three categories for the 10 questions. The first category is around abuse, and there's emotional, physical, sexual abuse. And then there is around neglect, which is emotional and physical neglect. And then there is household dysfunction, which is um, having substance abuse in the family, domestic violence, mental illness, if a parent is in prison, and if there are no parents, if both parents are not in the family. So there are 10 questions. And it's really around the dose response. So for each question that you answer yes to, then that is the dose response. So the higher your A score, your adverse childhood experience score goes, then the higher that you have these behavioral health pieces. And the biggest piece around this was what it showed around the public health. So, for example, if you have an A score of four or, or above, then you're about two and a half times likely to have hepatitis compared to someone that does not have an A score. If um, four and a half times for depression compared to someone that does not have an A score. Um, six categories or more, 6,000 times to be an IV drug user and around 3,000 to 5,000 more times to attempt suicide. So what they found was was this adversity 
was really creating um, this uh, that that people were really going to go into had much more of a trajectory to go into um, into having you know unsustainable health. behaviors. Yes, yes, sorry, I could not get that <laughs> language out. So, um, and, and the way we describe it a little bit is if you're walking in the woods and you um, see a bear, your heart starts beating really fast, and all of a sudden the frontal lobe shuts down, because we do not want the frontal lobe to be intact when we see a bear, because <laughs> we do not want to think about what we're going to do with that bear. So, we're going to go into the fight or flight response. Yeah, we're not and thinking how cuddly and cute no, the bear is. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, so we're we're going to figure out, well, you know, but but what happens is and that's that is if we don't the seeing the bear is not the norm. Mm-hmm. So we want those responses. We want the frontal lobe to shut down, and we want the heart rate because we want to do something. We want that to happen so we can flee. But what we say is, what happens when the bear comes home every night? Yeah. And what happens is, is then that that innate system, that innate system to run, to have the frontal lobe, it becomes the norm. And so what happens with children is that their brain begins to be wired for danger. Mm-hmm. And so they're not really able to, to distinguish between what is safe and what is dangerous. And what happened, and Eric certainly had, I remember one of the first times some of our young people came up to the farm and Eric's ready. He's, you know, he's ready. He's got the soil. They're going to do some planting <laughs> of the seeds. And what happened? Oh, there was multiple fights and, <laughs> and, um, the teachers having to restrain them. And, um, it was a war zone. Um, and I, uh, I, I had to immediately acclimate to normalizing it. Five minutes later, the kid that was bashing the other kid's face and was coming up, Mr. Eric, I'm sorry. Can I be a part of uh, mm-hmm. planting again and everything? So there, the, this highly traumatized state causes a fight or flight that causes kind of chaos that that doesn't allow for what your question was leading up to sustainability to fully be absorbed by the community. So if you're not walking into a community to where the behavioral characteristics are as such to where people are ready to absorb what you're talking about, like higher things like climate change or health and wellness or anything like that, you're not going to, you're, you're basically throwing dry noodles at the wall. Mm -hmm. They're just, falling down but I, I, I digress yeah and so what so what eric ran you know came engaged with was the trauma brain mm-hmm. it was too much stimulus and 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 so the you know the heart rate goes the frontal lobes closing down and then it is okay how do we get these young people and these young children to kind of calm down and become resilient in that moment because resilience the definition of resilience is the ability to bounce back but what we really want is we want them to bounce back, but you can only bounce back so often. What we really want is for them to bounce forward toward hope into action. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've been really working is how do you build that resiliency up? And I wanted to say one more thing. There is um, out of uh, Georgetown University is Wendy Ellis, who um, developed mm-hmm. the pair of aces. So the pair of aces is just think about this. You have a, you're able to see if a tree, how healthy a tree is. How do you, how do you see how, how do you know if a tree's healthy? Well, if it's got leaves, the looks good. I right. mean, you, you judge it by its appearance. Right. And at the core of that tree is what? 
the the core, the roots, and the internal. Right. Yeah, the transpiration system. Right. Go back to biology. And so this is going to get back to what your question was. So you're able to see the healthiness of the leaves. So the healthy, the leaves are the adversity. Mm -hmm. So those are the categories if you're looking at a tree that is, you you don't want the tree to, to go toward those adversities. But at the core of it is the community and what is occurring in the community. So those are the roots. Mm -hmm. So how, how do systems, how does policy? How do systems buffer, help communities to grow in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's how this partnership has been really powerful because we're literally, literally talking about the soil. Yeah. Well, I, you know, as you're talking, I'm just envisioning a lot of these, uh, viewpoints about um, social determinants and how we, uh, especially in the healthcare environment, how uh, we kind of judge based on your appearance. You know, we have a lot of biases built in and, and we see a patient come and or a student or however, you know, whoever you're interacting with. And we we immediately say, oh, they look fine, you know, or they might be overweight and we judge them that way or, they, you know, however the appearance might. But what but what you're saying, you're seeing the leaves, but you, you, we've got to dig a little deeper and find how healthy those roots are before we can get prescriptive, and and that's a hard thing to do, I think. And and you're tackling a very tough problem, um, but you're doing it, I think, in a way that 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 shows us all. I mean, that metaphor between our own community's roots and ourselves and how healthy we are with uh, with with um, with the actual health of the soil and how plants grow and thrive and and be resilient to all the external factors that are that are coming against it. So, I mean, I think that's a beautiful model. Um, I don't know what my point or what my question is, but you look like you were about to say something. <laughs> well, at the end of the day, so a little a little background. Um, so, I, when I was in coal country, um, referencing the TED talk, um, I showed up there with grandiose ideas of transitioning coal country using renewable energy on mountaintop removal sites. Um, it took some strong doses of being humble and what, what uh, folks in the documentary studies world call deep listening um, to where you're not telling a story for somebody, but you're actually co-creating that story. Same thing goes with community development that um, kind of, um, eating the entire humble pie as opposed to taking a couple of nibbles um, led into us developing a fairly innovative uh, strategy for really integrating sustainability in the heart of coal country that is now rapidly um, kind of taking shape across uh, central Appalachian region, which has a multitude of health disparities. It's right in the middle of the diabetes belt, some of the most impoverished areas in the country. And it, it was a, it was an, it was an interesting um, experience and why I get so excited about the trauma resiliency stuff is there was there were moments when we were working with you know highly traumatized individuals that were former veterans with high rates of PTSD. They were getting their hands in the soil. Um, something was happening. They're making all these um, to use a technical term cognitive connections in their brain. Um, reestablishing, reprogramming their brain to where they're connecting to the soil, growing a plant, um, producing a tomato, eating the tomato, preparing the tomato, eating it, and starting the whole cycle again. 
um, that kind of informed um, the model here. But um, at the end of the day, when you're going and you're talking at higher higher level social determinants of health, you know, if I go off and um, some impoverished communities across North Carolina, they're, they're going to be looking at me like a deer in headlights. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But if, if you're uh, getting outside of that kind of high academic language and, and, and working on um, systemically building in projects that allow people to actively participate in it, while simultaneously it's addressing those systemic physiological issues. So if I'm going in and I'm being triggered because of some past stuff that happened to me in my past, in my past, I'm less likely to be listening to you in terms of these higher level things related to health and wellness or climate change or any of the other like things that we like to layer in under the umbrella of like what a sustainable community may look like. Um, but I, I learned a lot about how to talk about things in very simplistic, accessible ways in coal country, but now layering that into an actual science of the physiology of what's enabling somebody physically to be able to open their ears, listen, shut down that fight or flight response. And it has everything to do with reconnecting with nature. So the science is what's most exciting. When people stick their hands in soil, there's microbes in that soil that we've co-evolved with the soil for millions of years. Well, um, hundreds yeah. of thousands of years as Homo sapiens sapiens. Yep. Um, to where uh, we've created this um, um, relationship with the soil that stimulates serotonin. And what serotonin does simply uh, for your neural network that either it's locked in a fight or flight um, state or it's not locked in a fight or flight state. You can think of it as lubricating the gears, which is a simplified way of understanding the way the brain works. But we're also taking a lot of these traumatized kids and also traumatized folks from across the community and not only re-plugging into soil and growing their own food and everything, but it's specifically the way that we're building the soil. It's called bio-nutrient farming. Um, it's a new kind of farming that literally increases the nutrient density of the food. And the most exciting part about that is some of the science is supporting that once that nutrient-dense food with minerals and bioavailable vitamins and everything like that, it it allows for one to pass from that fight-or-flight flight, uh, state um, uh, within your uh, um, sympathetic system to the parasympathetic system to where you're like, more receptive and everything. So coupling that um, while going out into communities and talking to them and talking to where they're more accessible to it, what what you're talking to them and co-building with them and doing is reconnecting with the very thing that's going to heal them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I think to that piece is, um, and I, it's, Eric and I are great together because it's great because we have common lang- language and then we describe things the same but with different language a little mm-hmm. bit. Because what he, for me, what Eric's talking about is creating those buffers mm-hmm. in some way where, where if you think about um, stress and you think about there's positive stress, well, what would be positive stress? 
Um, the runner's high after long run. Yes, yes. So so there's positive stress, and then there's tolerable stress. Mm -hmm. And tolerable stress is where it gets a little bit higher, and it could be um, for a hard day at work, a hard day, or even higher than that, it could be your house floods, or Mm -hmm. you know something happens that really affects you uh, pretty seriously. However, you have buffers. You 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 usually will have some sort of buffers where you have a support system, or you have right. family, or you have some you know some system that comes around you and says you're going to be okay. We'll call whatever to get them in to help you. Toxic stress is where you don't have those buffers, and so when you're talking about going into communities and talking about what Eric's been creating, a lot of it is that it's creating that system. It's, it's about collaboration. Mm-hmm. And Eric's been really, um, he's brought so much to, to my learning also about collaboration and how do you really do that. But that collaboration is creating those systems that are going to help buffer a lot of our communities that there's, there's still inequity. Mm-hmm. You know, inequity is at the core of trauma resilience. Right, right. And so it's like, how do you bring equity and, and the way, and we're creating it in a different way. Would you say that? Yeah, um, ab- absolutely. So um, to get into the original question around the most exciting part of like what we're deploying. So all that social determinants of health and trauma resiliency, the most important thing to walk away from is how it affects you physically. Um, you know, either you're happy and healthy or you're not. Um, but we're integrating that into um, our farm um, to where um, a lot of our um, kids that we work with that have um, very high A scores, we're um, integrating them via the story of the plate. So they, they show up on the farm, they, they bring some apples and oranges. Normally, I ask them, where do these come from? Some of them will be like, supermarket, mom, <laughs> dad, grandma. Yeah. And uh, more and more I've seen over the past year, a lot of them are looking around. They're like, the farm. <laughs> it's like, correct. Yeah. So they're eating it. They're putting it in the compost. And then they're touching that compost. I, we require them, every one of the kids to touch every single part of it to where it's not just in their heads, but it's in their body. Mm-hmm. To where they're touching the compost. They're, they're mixing up the soil. They're planting food. Um, they're nourishing that food as it's growing. They're eating that food. And we're expanding it into arts as well. So, for example, uh, we had a bunch of uh, fifth graders come um, and integrate the same story, the plate um, circular strategy to where they brought food, composted, grew some flowers, harvested the flowers, turned it into natural dyes, took it back to their classroom. And and then they created these yarns that they're potentially going to be integrating into a an art installation. And at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's reconnecting with reality, um, layering in the science of social determinants of health, basically community health, Mm -hmm. layering in the science of uh, neurophysiology as it relates to trauma resiliency. But the biggest component, um, and this is what we're building in that I've seen successful in coal country is building this buffer uh, components to where at these community gardens become an epicenter for uh, local churches such as Alpha and Omega with East Winston Community Garden as an epicenter for connecting the community. 
and learning from the soils on how soil already has embedded in the soil what's called mycorrhizal fungi, these fungal networks, on how these same designs that allow for the resilience of the soil to, the, to produce unbelievably rich, nutritionally dense food, we can also learn from those same networks and figure out, like, well, how's, how's that affecting my brain? How's that affecting the way that we're building relationships mm-hmm. um, in communities and everything? So for, for me, like, everything is about the soil and then branching out of that into, like, a, a, a broad-based community garden network that's linked to our anchor farm and all the other components. Yeah, this is rich with analogies and yeah. metaphors. I mean, it really is. I mean, you know, every podcast I've said the opposite of addiction is social connection. So you're building that um, with these common spaces where people are coming to. Um, you're building, from, you're going from survive to thrive, or at least that's the 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 dynamic and the the. Um, the, the way you want to see it move because a lot of these kids the way you describe are in survival mode i mean they mm-hmm. see it they're That's overstimulated true. and the first instinct is to start throwing blows and and, and getting something for themselves and now you you want to build it so they see the value in in what's happening and deep listening and all that stuff but also like i mean just just as you describe this I, you know a lot of things come to mind the the research and that we now know how our gut flora affects our brain and our behavior um how unhealthy roots no matter how pretty the tree is isn't sustainable isn't going to be around for very long um so so you're you're getting those root roots back into the community and just how uh um, you know, the same way that um, we know that C-section babies have more infections because they didn't pass through the vaginal canal and get all that flora, that resiliency built that way, um, sort of the same as, as, as uh, people in communities without a connection to the soil or, you know, and for whatever reason, whether lack of rich soil areas or lack of resources to, to, or lack of time, or even, you know, even if it's on the Vicky and that's gross. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have those things. I'm going to take a a side note. When I was down in, in the Caribbean, um, I spent, I was looking for this picture right before you came. I spent Christmas 2003 planting mangrove propagules in the mud flats where there used to be big mangrove forests and they had been harvested and cut down for whatever reason and some um, just erosion and whatnot. And, and, uh, we used to try to, you know, get the local kids to come with us. Well, they didn't want to get their shoes dirty. You know, like, well, take your shoes off. Well, then I'm going to get muddy. You know, I'm like, these are little Caribbean kids who didn't want to get dirty because they had just attributed farming and, and planting and being in the soil as, as like a dirty thing. And it's not something, you know, us, us of the first world and, and developed world would want to. Why would we want to do that? And, and so there, there's, I've seen it come around now where where kids are are um, really ready and willing just because there's been such a, a dearth of those opportunities and now uh, they're, they're they're volunteering and willingly coming yeah I want to get muddy let's go plant some stuff you know so mm-hmm. um, trying to get a question out of there just uh, uh, you know I, I see the, these analogies to the, the the botanist world to the 
to the biology biological world and to the sociological world and and our, our um, you know the way we interact as communities and just how important it is to 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 get back in the soil and and the last place I wanted to go with this was um, you know I we see the a lot of um, what we I don't know some I guess antisocial behaviors in in places where there's uh, high populations of people. I'm thinking about the the cities and and stuff. And you you, you hear people bringing up complaints and grievances about like made up things. And it's like you need to just go take a hike in the woods. I mean, to take a hike used to be like an insult, but it's like, no, that's a prescription. <laughs> get out and, and get into nature. So there's all these things wrapped up into what you're doing, which I love. And, and I just think that that's what we lose sight of sometimes is how important nature is to our human survival and our ability to thrive in that. And we lost sight of how important it is to to have nature as a part of us to be able to get into that thrive thrive i mean like you're saying there there are microbes in the soil that are beneficial to us and all we have to do is touch them mm-hmm. you know and we incorporate those into our and that changes our brain and changes our our our, our response to things so I, I just i just love what you're doing i, I don't have a question but <laughs> um maybe you can talk about how 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 you see that being translated uh, beyond cross nor beyond this 110 acre farm well real quick dive on um, analogy and metaphor i think okay. i think it um it's interesting to build those analogies and metaphors for curriculum so when you're Explaining to kids in classrooms, which were we have several pilots across the community, beginning with Kingswood um, Alternative School um, on our campus. Um, building those metaphors and analogies are important windows for, I think, the inevitable goal is these aren't really analogies at all um, in terms of if you think about the gut flora. Um, bacteria have what they call a high fitness function. Um, their ability to adapt very rapidly. Um, so what that looks like if we're eating a lot of sugars, our gut flora is adapting to that sugar to break down whatever kind of nutrients we can produce out of it, which is not much, uh, to keep sustain our body or whatnot. But once we start eating healthy, that gut flora immediately adapts to that to where some of the, the bad gut flora. The same thing goes with soil. A lot of the, the bacteria, protozoa, all these technical science terms for bugs in our stomach and mm-hmm. bugs in the soil really have the same kind of uh, history um, to where it's not analogy at that point in time. So when we're talking about the connection between the gut and the soil, it's a very real direct direct yeah. connection. And the same thing is when you're when you're considering the the fungal networks that begin looking like a lot of the neural networks and everything. These are design strategies that that nature and reality have been using for millions of years. And there's a reason why they're using them. But the, the problem is, is we're not learning from them and figuring out like, well, this is deep, deep, deep wisdom. How can we begin learning from them and not in an analogous way? That's a good window. But in a very physical, real way in building resilient networks and communities to building resilient cities mm-hmm. and surrounding urban areas and everything. Mm-hmm. So that was a slight dig- digression. And well, I think it was right and, on. I think it was and, right. 
Well, I, I had a question for you, Mary Beth. Um, working with kids, do you see a moment where um, them, you know, in, immersed in this uh, in this environment, um, is there a point where they go from cortisol activated to more of a like a endorphin flow state i would say i mean is there is is there something that you can actually feel or see um in this in in this program as they as they traverse through it a good example is we had two young people and one was 17 and i think the other about 15 um so Mm -hmm. they uh were working on the farm now these were two young men who they had a, a lot of trauma their A scores are high. A lot of the, you know, the brain, the fight, flight. And they came up week after week after week when the farm was just in the, in its infancy stage. And didn't enjoy it. And did not enjoy it. <laughs> did not enjoy it. You know, were triggered on different ways. And to watch them come up to that, to the farm and work side by side with Eric and Courtney and other staff and their staff, their cottage parents, they wrote, they both wrote letters because they were designing, they wanted to design a shirt that um, represented the farm. And so they both wrote letters and the letters were about how the farm and working in the soil and, and having that experience actually changed them. Mm-hmm. And one of the young men's been adopted and being adopted at 14, 15 years old. Yeah, it's not a that is common not a, occurrence. It's not a common occurrence. And the other one is very steeped in what his future is going to be. So just with those two, two young men, what that farm and getting that soil and, and being in that environment where most of our young people only know concrete. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't, they, they have yards, they have, but they, 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 don't know about nature or really understand what that nature is because they're in survival mm-hmm. and they have gunshots outside their their houses and apartments and they have gangs and they have these you know different communities that do not have buffers to support you know support these children that are growing up in mm-hmm. in our town mm-hmm. so yeah so there's been there's lots of stories of the little ones i went up not too long ago and eric we were up there we have 18-month-year-olds to 17, 18-year-olds. And to watch those little ones in that soil, and they just enjoy it. They don't care about but they just enjoy it so much, and they're calm. Mm-hmm. They're calm. Yeah. And they're, they're, you can just see their, their faces are not, you know, their faces are calm, and they're, and they're relating to the cottage parents, which sometimes, you know, there's sometimes the cottage parents need for them to do different things. But just to see kind of that facial structure and to see them laughing and and enjoying what they're doing is just beyond what I can say about resiliency. Well, yeah, I, as you were saying that, I, I could just envision some technological advancement where you could look through a pair of glasses and you would see th- th- that some sort of heat map change as they dug in the soil. We're developing that. <laughs> <laughs> and so as the cortisol levels subside Absolutely. and the endorphin levels rise, you could see real time how it really is affecting yeah, and that's so. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, um, along those lines, we've just established we have a gym here in Winston Salem uh, through the University of North Carolina School of the Arts um, called the um, um, 
Metal. Yeah, metal. Um, media and emerging technology mm-hmm. uh, lab. And their specific focus is around immersive um, technologies and augmented reality. So we're doing just that. We're now starting to set the stage for, for example, uh, the, the simplified version is kids are in their classroom doing arts or primarily like STEAM, science, technology, um, engineering, arts, and mathematics, different lessons in their class. And then it's integrated into, for the young ones, a very accessible uh, cartoon talking about all the life in the soil and all this kind of stuff. Then they come out on the farm and they're interacting our soil out. They see those same images of the fun little bacteria. They get to look down in microscope and see the living bacteria that we've been growing there. And then take some of that into the soil and connecting that. Um, that's where we're starting at. But our overall goal is using... Um, a lot of the uh, innovative work that um, the Cleveland Clinic and several other folks that are using, like Google Glasses, all that kind of stuff, for medical research, um, integrating this into trauma resiliency. Uh, for example, like when somebody has a phantom limb syndrome, uh, mm-hmm. they've used a mirror, and it literally like um, um, they feel like their limb is is itching on the the end and everything um, that that actually re-stimulates a lot of the neural networks that weren't there. Um, if they're scratching this hand, um, it, it resolves the issue. They're able to reestablish new neural networks. Similar to that, the, the, those, uh, that kind of science is the more we are aware of exactly what you're talking about, kids, adults, young adults are aware of what happens w- in a traumatized state or when you're eating some nutritionally dense food and what's it doing to your gut flora, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. We're beginning to layer in um, that innovative curriculum um, in both Crossnor as well as deploying it through the Winston-Salem Forsyth County school system. That's great. See, I wasn't crazy when I brought that at all. Spot on. (laughs) Well, that's great. I I have to – Go in just uh, for a second. I, I know Crossnor has been in the news lately about uh, getting some funding f- to support the sus- sustaining the current uh, land that's out there, and and there's been some pu- there was some pushback from from some of the legislators, I guess, about oh we've got more uh, higher priorities. And, and as you've talked, I, I've been you know I, I sort of had an inkling that uh, of of my position on that, and you know. Um, to me, it's like a worthwhile investment to keep natural land in its natural state um, because it does create that buffer. It creates that place where um, that's needed for these type things and for people to be able to just walk out. And I don't know how accessible it is to the public, but um, to be used for nature versus it getting sold and then becoming like where the YWCA used to be and becoming, you know, homes from the 800,000s, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I, that's where I saw it going if it weren't sustained in its current state. So uh, any any comments about where, you know, that yeah, I know there's a little bit of controversy in, in, in the city council, maybe, I guess, was any comment there or? Yeah, I think there was. And, and, and I think it goes to where our community is, is the need in the community. And you talk about the social determinants of health and where we are on the, in the country around food insecurity and where we are about poverty. So I didn't really, I, th- I think there was going to be, 
it's just people have different projects in different places where they feel like the money money needs to go because everyone's going after the same pot of money. Mm-hmm. So what uh, I guess what I can say about that is I can see why in some way how that how that contra- how it happened. Yeah. Because you see the chil- the Crossner Children's Home is this beautiful piece of land and and you know it's been there for a long time and I think some people think it'll go away some don't think it will go away, but I can see why there was a controversy. Yeah, and uh, I do too. I mean, I, I can see both sides, and, and uh, but I, I could also see the 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 case where a developer gets a hold of it and it becomes another walled private community, and then it's not a resource that we can drive by and look at anymore and say, "Oh, look how beautiful that is." And I remember it used to be belted Galloways grazing out there in the pasture. Mm-hmm. You know what? Ten years ago, maybe. Um, I'll tell you, there's something special about that. Yeah. For it to still be still be here is yeah. is has a, a testament to it's a miracle the, farm. <laughs> it's a miracle farm. Yeah. yeah, it is a miracle farm. Well, I know there's like a, a ropes course and stuff yes. there too. Can you talk about that and how you integrate that into into the the curriculum and and how that how that um, integrates with with all the stuff you're doing? We um, the ropes course is used with the children and families in the programs and talk about a way to very quickly on the ropes course very quickly if you did not understand trauma if you had a did not have an A score mm-hmm. and you went up on that ropes course and you got to the first block the first step and you could not step any further that is such it's such an example. We've had multiple, multiple people that have gone out there that said, oh, my gosh, I now have an understanding what happens to the brain yeah, when yeah. that frontal lobe closes down and I want to do fight or flight. Mm-hmm. So we're also, so with the Miracle Ground Network, the Adventure-Based Counseling and the Center for Trauma Resiliency, Trauma Resilient Communities, we're all working together now in developing curriculum around how do these three partners work together mm-hmm. so the ropes course is fun yeah, number yeah. one it's fun and number one it creates team building it helps with youth that have never worked together mm-hmm. um, and also giving them a sense of confidence because mm-hmm. if you can get through that ropes course it's a beautiful yeah. ropes course if you can work through that ropes course you're developing a a your brain is developing a sense of I can do this. A, a buffer. It's mm-hmm. creating your own buffers, really. Well, like you're saying too, that it's a good lesson for those with no A score. I mean, I, I would call, you know, in in modern parlance, it's the the privileged. You know, it's it's our privilege showing when we don't know that feeling and and to think about that feeling and think about someone having that feeling all the time mm-hmm. and how crippling that could be so i mean to to understand that i think makes us more aware and and, and more accommodating to those people around us that maybe we we just didn't see before and and now now we can see so that that's a that's a great thing um now i wanted to uh something you mentioned earlier the the when you went out to appalachia to the to the former i gotta i gotta correct you there okay appalachia appalachia sorry oh i'm gonna get sorry, that's, for that. my, that's my country boy I okay <laughs> just if you go up there um everybody up there will give you a kind loving smile and if they like you they'll correct they'll you. correct <laughs> yeah. you i say so don't take it personally yeah. if they correct yeah. you yeah. that's a good sign no that's a good sign that's right if they stay silent you know, or if they good. say, bless your heart. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so just wanted to, it, 
you know, what was your biggest lesson or, or do you have any lessons from when you went there? I mean, I, I've, I've been to places where, you know, I come with a, a huge amount of energy and, and, and the, uh, uh, a desire to make the world a better place. And sometimes you go into some place with that and it's not well received because they're, Oh, here you go. Another person's going to come change us for the better, you know, an outsider. And, um, I had uh, some guests on the podcast that, that, um, you know, really emphasize, I mean, they were community connectors. They were building, um, uh, road bike and dirt bike trails in Davidson County. And they connecting that with public parks to make, you know, spaces for activities that were accessible and, um, inclusive to, to the communities. And what, one of their lessons were, uh, you know, to go in and understand the community, to, to do the deep listening before and to figure out how the community's working, what's working, what's not. Was there any acute lessons that you had when you went in? I mean, ready to change the world and, and you know, was anything that just stuck out as like, you know, that, 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 that grounded you back from your lofty ambitions? <laughs> um, some of my lofty ambitions came from the fact that I was disconnected, talking about trauma, um, from communities and learning a lot of stuff from the academic setting. Um, so um, one of my favorite quotes from Mark Twain is, never let your schooling get in the way of your education. So yeah. I found most of my real valuable education occurring outside of academia's walls. Um, so it started there, and I carried that um, kind of mantra into um, coal country, and academia's walls was kind of this preconceived environmentalist idea of renewable energy, transition, coal's bad. Um, but uh, a humbleness of stepping outside of that and doing a lot of deep listening. Um, um, and, and, and people aren't stupid. Like they, they know when you're literally listening to them or, you know, that, that Eric's not listening to me at all. Cause, and what was so, um, um, apparent when I came there is this is a region for 150 years that have been inundated by tons of do-gooders that have come in outsiders saying that they're going to do something really good all the way to like the war on poverty in the 1960s, even before that, later on in um, the environmental movement, in the 90s, 2000s of outsiders coming in saying that they're going to do something good. And there was a, it, it became apparent in seeing the way that those groups were not doing any listening at all. So, uh, sitting down, listening, um, and beginning designing the community and what their vision was. So for example, brain drain, a lot of the grandmas and grandpas were, were not feeling good about, um, seeing their grandbabies leave and never come back. Um, so how can we build that into it? Or I don't health and wellness, um, the health disparities. Um, and then, so through that deep listening and building an actual project around that to where somebody can not only hear your words, but they actually have a living, breathing experience where you and many other folks have a tangible example of saying like, look, after two or three years, we can point to this. You can interact with it. Uh, it's responsive to you, your needs, and everything like that. That builds up so much trust to where it accelerates uh, what uh, had typically taken some groups when I was doing a lot of history uh, research around the history of Appalachia 
10, 15, 20 years to do, we were able to accomplish in a very small amount of time within about three years. Um, so two takeaways is like, do your research um, and figuring out all what has and has not. And so you can kind of break down your assumptions or stereotypes of people that you are quote unquote there to help. And two, um, eat copious amounts of humble pie <laughs> um, and and listen. Mm-hmm. And then and that's the same thing that we're doing um, over in East Winston. I've created like unbelievably close friendships um, over there over the past two years that is now producing fruit. And this is a very racially traumatized community. And uh, listening around that and then uh, building and co-designing and co-building with them on what they envision their community. And it's fun to do when you mm-hmm. really do that. Um, so there's lessons that I learned in central Appalachia. We're applying here uh, with a lot of my close friends over in East Winston that have very, very similar economic disparities, health disparities, and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, yeah, it's nice to, you know, donate your dollars towards a, a cause, but if you really want to see change, you know, you got to go out there and authentically show up, I think. And, and it's, it's great to hear what you're saying is you're out there in the communities, helping them reestablish the roots that, that have been missing, I think. And not necessarily helping them like um, going above and beyond that is, having fun co-building with them, yeah, you know, side by side uh, to where initially it may come from a place of helping. But um, as I've matured with every community um, from an infant uh, point to, I would say I'm about four years old over in East Winston, still very immature, but that helping disposition, which is a good place to start at, has been evolved and maturing into a position of Mm co-building. And that's when the really exciting stuff happens because at that point in time in the past in central Appalachia, that's when we started seeing a lot of the miracles of people coming out of the woodwork and Mm -hmm. starting revisioning their community. I'm starting to see that happen in East Winston right now. Yeah. I like that term co-building because I think the, the, the term helping has a connotation that, the, you know, you need help. You're broken, so I'm here to fix it, and that that kind of sets a power dynamic uh, or a power differential um, out of the gate. And I think when you say I'm here to help you build, let's or I'm here to co-build with you is is probably a better way to start that relationship in a in a equal manner, a, a power different, a lack of power differential, let's say. Exactly. And that, that, that's the unifying component of when you, when you start thinking about trauma resiliency and the way that the vast majority of us are disconnected from the soil for tens of thousands of years, even um, systemically across the board, no matter what nation you go to, um, that it's, it's no longer a, a helping but it's all, it's looking at each other and be like, we're all traumatized. <laughs> uh, we're all disconnected from reality. We're all, we're all in this together and reestablishing this connection with the soil, with the food, with the very essence of what enables us to have a conscious experience of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, uh, it becomes an equal playing field. And even the science points out with trauma resiliency is trauma is not picky. It it, it 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 picks on just as um, many 
quote unquote white folks as uh, black and brown in some circumstances. And what, what I mean by that is the, the equality around that or the equity around that starts emerging around, you know, economic disparities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even folks that come from very wealthy backgrounds have um, high A scores. Mm-hmm. So that, that begins to kind of level out the playing field and realizing that we're all in this together. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Um, I, I, I tend to think that uh, we've all been traumatized for, in a lot of ways. We were all brought off the farm to get into manufacturing, to be cogs in the machine. And then when, you know, that's one form of trauma is to lose that connection with nature. And we didn't even really understand what that was in, until it was too late. And then with the manufacturing base disappearing, then we were traumatized by the lack of purpose and, and which leads to things like the op- opioid crisis and, and suicide rates and homelessness and all these other things that, that affect our society. So I think, you know, you know, getting back to the soil in some sense, both literally and metaphorically, uh, is, is important to cure this trauma. And I think we're all traumatized from, uh, you know, I'm gonna get on a soapbox here, but for you know, 45, 50 years of of global hege- hegemony, and 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 uh, you know, and then it comes back on September 11, 2001, and we're all just sitting there like, why did this happen? It's like we're, we're we blocked that from our from our consciousness that we may have had a part to play in causing this, and now it's it's the same thing with you know um me and my privilege of having white skin um and and uh, stepping into an environment of uh racial trauma it's it, i may not have participated directly in you know the institutionalization of of racism but a part of um reconciliation around uh healing uh community trauma and everything is it's not about that it's about meeting people where they're at and the same thing that you were talking about you know uh systemic war across the area when you start thinking of somebody in the middle east as the other you're perpetuating trauma so the the fundamental component of the model that we're trying to at least perpetuate here in winston-salem is to break down those barriers and understanding the identity behind uh, the folks, instead of having these stereotypes of like, oh, you're the problem, you're the issue, instead like asking like, what caused well, that to occur in the first place? And <laughs> what we kind of in our, with the trauma resiliency world, world is with our young people and children and families we work with is we've moved from, we don't say what's wrong with you, mm-hmm. we say what's happened to you. And we take it even one step further is we say what's strong in you. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the paradigm shift for us. Yeah, and it's been really uh, powerful for a young person or a family member when you're going in that you say that because they're going to expect you to say what's wrong with you, why can't you do this right, why are you not doing what you need to be mm-hmm. doing, and all those wonderful ways that we talk to people and be able to sit there and say what happened. Yeah, and I think that's the difference in healthcare too. In behavioral health, I think the the language is being adjusted to say, "Hey, let's talk about your strengths. What's going? Right. What do you love about yourself? You know, those start from that place, and then let's get into the deeper things. And then, of course, here at the hospital, it's like, what's wrong? You know, what, we need to fix you, right? right? So right. you're here because something is wrong, and we're here to fix. So, so I think those two things are starting to merge a little more in, in that. Okay, so. 
instead of your focusing on your comorbidities, what what is it about your life that you want to do more of so that we can address these other things so that you can do more of it and do it do it more often and and live a more healthier and more sustainable life. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I appreciate you coming in. Let us uh, let the listeners know how they can find out more about Cross Nor and about the story of the plate and how they can uh, co-build and and and. So I'll let you have the the mic to self shamelessly self promote if you would. Well, um, I can give you uh, my email address. Um, if any of the listeners want to know more about it, my email address is E as in Eric Mathis, M-A-T-H-I-S, at crossnord.org. Um, and we're also going to be um, putting more information on our site. Uh, right now, the listeners can go up and look up Miracle Grounds Farm. Uh, we're going to have additional information, hopefully uh, links to where uh, if anybody's interested in volunteering in the summer, the farm is fun, fun, fun. It's not, um, I mean, some of it is hard work, sweating and everything, but I consider that fun I do too. as well. But I mean, uh, it's a fun time. It's, it's interesting to take a deep dive on what's going on at the farm and how it's connected to the city. So, All right, Mary Beth? And you can also contact me, uh, same, uh, similar address, M. Robinson, M for Mary Robinson, R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N, at crossnor.org. And also our main number, I'll give that number, is 336-721-7600. And, of course, the website's at crossnor.org. Yes. All right. Please go. And the farms on that and all ways to volunteer and help us with what our mission is. Well, as usual, I'll probably think of a million more questions that I didn't ask that I want to, so I may ask you back um, as guests. But I really appreciate your time today, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having us.